Welcome to Fax Machine. It's the dog days of summer here, and no one is more aware of that than us, as we've turned off the air conditioning because, we've been told, it affects the quality of our audio. So we'll be sweating it out for this episode. Uh, but you've made it to episode 7, where today we'll be discussing today's theme, Unsung Heroes. So in order to celebrate Unsung Heroes, I will now read to you the lyrics of Mariah Carey's 1993 hit, Hero. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Oh, no. <laughs> Some disappointment in the room. No, what we'll actually be doing is that each of us will share a fact about an interesting or unheard of individual and the impact that they've had on modern life. Uh, so we'll discuss these facts a little bit, and to wrap it up, I'll conduct a pub-style quiz loosely inspired by the theme. Before we dive in, just a reminder, check us out on social media at FaxMachinePod on Instagram and Twitter, and FaxMachinePodcast on Facebook. And if you listen on any major audio platform, please drop us a rating or a review. So to begin, I'll hand it off to Noah. Thanks, Rob. This week I learned that Archbishop Isidore of Seville solved one of the biggest problems in the ancient world. How to catch a unicorn. His solution? Virgins. It's funny because it makes so much sense now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who could imagine a world where unicorns still roam free without the solution that old Izzy came up for us? I mean, <laughs> virgins, they're as plentiful as Wi-Fi these days. <laughs> <laughs> yes. As the old saying goes, as plentiful as Wi-Fi. <laughs> well, it's spreading like Wi-Fi. <laughs> oh, God. Well, this is starting great. Um, so, ancient texts such as the Hebrew Bible, as well as ancient thinkers like Pliny the Elder and Aristotle, uh, had written that unicorns were so dangerous that they were impossible to catch alive. Um, I think it was Pliny who wrote uh, that they can take down elephants using their horn, um, they're super fast, they can't be caught by any man trying to hunt them and catch them, uh, and that is until 6th century Bishop Isidore Seville took the case. Of the ferocity of the unicorn, he writes, it is very strong and pierces anything it attacks. Thankfully, Izzy goes on to say, the unicorn is too strong to be caught by hunters except by a trick. If a virgin girl is placed in front of a unicorn and she bears her breast to it, all of its fierceness will cease and it will lay its head on her bosom and thus quieted it is easily caught. It's a hypothesis. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so this came from uh, Isidore Seville was writing in the 6th century, like a natural history. And the idea was to sort of like collate, you know, you know, everything that was known about the world. So all these people were writing about unicorns being these terrible beasts that nobody could take down, um, and that was like the one thing that show showed up repeatedly throughout all these different you know works of literature from a long time ago, until Isidore Seville actually suggested a solution. So at some point, somebody came up with this idea to add to the mythology of this unicorn, uh, and he had incorporated that, uh, and that was the first time that solution was ever given. And it occurs to me that in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Professor Quirrell and Voldemort kill a unicorn. So, <laughs> so this obsessed me for the entire time I'm working on this fact because 
I never really thought about <laughs> Professor Quirrell or Voldemort having sexual relationships with anyone or each other. I don't know. Hmm. But I was forced to consider whether Quirrell or Voldemort were virgins. So this is the question that led me to a number of Reddit threads. Oh, dear. <laughs> and even an article oh, on no. Slate, believe it or not, that exhaustively <laughs> cover this topic. Uh, and you'll be happy to know that the consensus is that Voldemort never had sex. Um, so now I'm forced to imagine Voldemort bearing his breasts to a unicorn, and now so are you. <laughs> <laughs> so for that image, you have uh, Isidore of Seville to thank for his solution to one of the most terrible problems of the ancient world. <laughs> the fact that Europe was just lousy with unicorns. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I have another bone to pick, which is the fact that you forced me to Google things like unicorn and virgin. <laughs> <laughs> so I also thought it was interesting um, how unicorns are mentioned in the Bible, and I wondered exactly what, what did God mean? <laughs> <laughs> this is the question I asked myself. <laughs> and so I looked up some of the verses. So unicorns are mentioned in the book of Numbers twice, and the Bible, like you mentioned, speaks of their strength and the power of a unicorn. Later in, in Deuteronomy and in the book of Psalms twice, uh, the unicorn is mentioned for its horn. It's very unique horn among animals. In the book of Job, um, there's a verse that speaks about how unicorns do not till the earth. Um, so they're untamed. Uh, and again, in the book of Psalms, is probably one of the, the longer quotes is how a unicorn is like a young calf skipping. And finally, Isaiah mentions unicorns um, are related to bulls and bullocks. So, a lot of a lot of very vague but animal references to the unicorn. Trying to figure out exactly what they meant, if they really meant the unicorn that we think of today, uh, which I think is is pretty universally agreed upon that they weren't picturing like the white rainbow unicorn that we all kind of know and love. It's interesting that um, in many different ancient cultures there is the tradition of some animal um, often having hooves that has a single horn coming out of its forehead. Uh, a couple in a couple instances, there are one horn animals found on some seals from the Indus Valley civilization, but also um, in East Asian cultures, and particularly in Korea, uh, the Kirin was a mythical hooved chimerical creature um, that is apparently has a single horn, uh, and that in a particularly interesting uh, instance was uh, mistranslated likely to unicorn. Uh, in 2012, North Korea claimed that its archaeologists had discovered a unicorn lair in a park in central Pyongyang. Uh, according to the press release, they knew it was a unicorn lair because a rock outside the cave was carved with the words unicorn lair, which I imagine was very helpful to the researchers. Um, but whether or not this you know, word or whether this animal is sort of directly analogous to unicorn is, is confusing, but there are these kind of myths that appear in a lot of different cultures. So that's very interesting. That's cool. Mm. Um, and actually, even Marco Polo in his adventures thought he saw a unicorn and actually wrote about such in his travels of Marco Polo, where he detailed all of his adventures afterwards. Um, and just to kind of cite a passage, and you guys can probably figure out what he was actually describing. Uh, there are wild elephants in the country and numerous unicorns, which are very nearly as big. They have hair like that of a buffalo, feet like those of an elephant, and a horn in the middle of the forehead, which is black and very thick. Uh, Tis a passing ugly beast to look upon, and is not in the least like that which our stories tell us, as being caught in the lap of a virgin. In fact, tis altogether different from what we fancied. So hmm. what do you guys are, think about they what talking actually about rhinos? Means? Yeah, that exactly. That's, that's what we think, um, at least. So I'll <laughs> tell you why rhinos definitely aren't unicorns, and that's okay. because they don't have a horn. Their uh -huh. horn that you think of is actually made of hair, and it's not a bone. Really? Yeah. It's just really thick. Wow. Although, <clears throat> one of the original translations of unicorn in the Bible was a monoceros. Monoceros, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, 
And just another fact right off of that is that commonly unicorn horns that were like traded around, particularly in medieval Europe and even today, um, uh, were actually narwhal tusks. Mm. Um, and and the uh, genus and species name of the narwhal is Monodon monoceros. Ah, ah that makes yeah. sense. So interesting you mentioned narwhals, because I did look up <clears throat> unicorns and unicorn horns, and I have a record of um, during Queen Elizabeth I's reign, she received a, car- a carved and bejeweled narwhal tusk worth approximately 10,000 British pounds, the cost of a castle, or $2.5 million in 2007 currency. Wow. Based on that value, I'm wondering if you have an estimate for how much the the actual real-life Danish monarch's throne um, is, according to legend, it's made of, made of unicorn horns. So the entire, this entire chair, the throne. Oh, wow. It, imagine, like, the Iron Throne from Game of Thrones, but, but just, just, like, unicorn horns, horns right? Um, <laughs> this is a real thing. You can look it up. Um, and in reality, it is, it's entirely made of narwhal tusks. So I wonder how expensive that chair would have been. Oh, how many yeah. castles you could have gotten for that. Oh, my goodness. Interesting. Well, part of why they were so valuable back then wasn't so much that they were rare, but also their supposed medicinal properties that they had. Um, in particular, they could, you know, they were considered able to cure all sorts of different maladies. Um, they could purify water like little medieval Brita filters. Um, and more importantly, especially in the case of royalty, they were thought to be an antidote to all poisons ever. Um, and actually, I've read a little bit on uh, this narwhal tusk debunking as well. And one of the first people to do that was actually this 17th century Danish physician named Ole Vorm. But his name is actually spelled Olworm, which I think is much funnier. <laughs> so I'm just going to call him that. Olworm. <laughs> but basically, he made it his business to collect all sorts of weird uh, relics and artifacts from all over the world and study them. Um, and in doing so, debunked a lot of weird misconceptions that were held at the time, um, including, actually in a callback to our previous episode, he disproved it was apparently a myth at the time that lemmings were spontaneously generated and fell out of the sky. Yeah. He determined that they were rodents yeah, they were, they were, and didn't do that. <laughs> people who believed that were probably standing under the cliff the Disney producers were exactly. excited about. Where are they coming from? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, But yeah, he also determined that unicorn horns were actually narwhal horns, but wasn't totally convinced they weren't still magically curative. So he opted to experiment about this um, by basically poisoning all of his pets and then giving them (laughs) ground up narwhal horn to cure them all. Um, and he said, oh, no, they are magical because it worked, which suggests to me more so that he wasn't very good at poisoning his pets. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's hard <laughs> to be hard on somebody for that. Yeah. <laughs> You're so bad at poisoning your pets. He's good at everything else, but poisoning his pets. Well, one last interesting thing. Um, the national animal of Scotland is the unicorn. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found this really interesting on visitscotland.com, which is the, the main tourism website for Scotland. You can see a list of all the best unicorns that are depicted in sculpture and art around Scotland, which is actually a super cool idea for a road trip. If anybody is down. Oh. Mm-hmm. That's pretty neat. <laughs> yeah. Here for it. My, my last thing is kind of the, the idea that now unicorns are all, you know, they can all fly on rainbows and they're all beautiful <laughs> white horses. And where did this come from? Um, and... Uh, there, there are probably a few sources, but like kind of the one that really cemented it in modern popular culture is My Little Pony. And wow, ah. My Little Pony really codified the idea that like horses can fly and they have rainbows and they're amazing. On My Little Pony, I don't know if anyone here watches Bob's Burgers. Yeah, yes. There's an excellent, excellent episode about the. Um, they don't have My Little Pony. They have the uh, the Equestronauts, <laughs> which is their their equivalent show that the the daughter Tina is very interested in. Um, this is a, a total sidetrack trivia, 
Um, there's a group of grown men who go to Equestricon, which is a comic con for <laughs> yeah. for My Little Pony fans. Sure. Do you know the name of the grown men that dress up as ponies? In the wait, in real in life, in Bob's Burgers. Uh, oh no, don't uh, call. So they're called Equesticles. <laughs> I was going to say Equestra Nuts. Oh, well, that's yeah, that also I almost said that. I didn't, I didn't want to go to the gutter right away. Yeah, but Rob. That's where it is. Bosburgers <laughs> did. Um, I actually have one more thing about the closest we've gotten to having unicorns in real life. Uh, so there was this biologist uh, named W. Franklin Dove. He's a professor at the University of Maine. And for some reason, he took it upon himself to see if he could make actual unicorns. Um, So in a paper that he submitted to what at the time was a pop science magazine called Scientific Monthly, uh, the paper being titled Artificial Production of the Fabulous Unicorn, he describes his procedure of performing surgery on really young calves, goats, or various uh, horned farm animals, um, where he'd remove their horn buds, which were kind of precursor structures to horns that weren't yet fused to their skulls, and then reimplant them in the middle of their foreheads closer together. So that way, as they grew, they would grow fused and kind of mold around each other into a single horn, like a unicorn. I feel like this doesn't have a good chance of working. <laughs> it, it apparently did. Um, there are pictures, and they're pretty creepy. <laughs> um, um, but apart from being weird, there was actually some interesting science that came from this, particularly in that it was kind of an early investigation of stem cells and connective tissue. Um, but also, behaviorally, it was observed that the bulls that had a single horn had different behavioral patterns, so they were more aggressive and considered to be more dominant by the rest of their herds. And they also learned to use it as a tool to clear various obstacles and hmm instigate fights with their bulls. So apparently if we did have real unicorns, they could take over the world. That's what I'm taking away from this. Wow. All right, thanks Noah. Uh, With our next fact, Emily, what do we got? Thanks very much. So my unsung hero uh, is Anne Royal who is unfortunately not remembered as the first American woman journalist, an influential voice and whistleblower in the post-revolutionary political scene, and a thoroughly persistent, unabashedly honest, and all-around badass lady. So the premise of my fact comes from a historical anecdote that centers around her, though actually as I was doing more research, I found out that while that story sums up her character astonishingly well, as you'll see, um, it's purely apocryphal, though not disproven but not proven either. So with that disclaimer in mind, I'm still going to tell that story and her story because they're both great and worth telling. So her story starts, hashtag her story, starts with, <laughs> starts with the death of her husband, uh, William Royal, who was a retired major of the American Revolution. They actually met back when she took a position as his maid in her early 20s, and he, apparently sensing her intellect pretty quickly, funded her education and study of literature. So upon his death, his family insisted that their marriage was a fraud and basically denied her any inheritance. So she did what any single penniless 18th century one would do and spent the next 25 years touring all 24 states at the time, uh, all the while making a name for herself through writing two novels and a series of essays that were described as, I quote, informative but sardonic portraits of the elite and their denizens from Mississippi <laughs> to Maine. Nice. Uh, so during that time, she made many acquaintances of the influential and political variety, and the anecdote that I mentioned earlier is actually about how she met her first presidential acquaintance, John Quincy Adams. So as the story goes, 
While visiting DC in hopes of claiming her late husband's military pension, uh, Anne set her mind to become the first woman to interview a president. And she made the request through JQA's office, who unsurprisingly turned her away. But she was not deterred and did some journalism, which, given her company and social status, probably took the form more so of strategic hobnobbing uh, <laughs> to figure out a way to pin him down. So John Quincy Adams, uh, he was known for generally being a really disciplined and diligent guy, um, both in his office and also in his health. Um, in particular, he'd start every day um, with some really early morning exercise, either a two-mile walk around Washington or, more often, a swim in the nude, which was apparently common back then. So Anne figured out uh, that he had this habit, and she saw an opportunity. And after, just by a sheer happenstance, stumbling upon one of his skinny-dipping sessions and sitting on his clothes that he left folded on the shore, uh, she floated the idea of an interview to him <laughs> once more. <laughs> Um, and she basically sat in his clothes, refused to leave her perch until he spoke with her. So naturally, he acquiesced, <laughs> having no other option. So this is surprising to me, um, and probably generally, but she and he actually remained lifelong friends after this encounter. Um, I guess he appreciated her persistence. But uh, the fact that she you know, had this tendency to satirize and criticize the social and political mores of her time, as well as one to whistleblow any corruption or bull S-word she saw, uh, no matter how high status or well-respected the perpetrator, tended to earn her more enemies than friends. So she was physically attacked, arrested, and socially ostracized throughout various points of her lengthy journalistic career. But despite that, still managed to secure interviews with presidents from George Washington to Abraham Lincoln, serve as the editor of her own publication, and generally strike fear into the hearts of prominent politicians and men in power. This all during a time when the expectations of women were limited to wearing bonnets and churning butter, I assume. Newspapers and other written records during her career uh, described how Capitol Hill bowed down in fear of her and called her hilarious scathing names, which I'll list a few because they're great, <laughs> um, like Serpent Tongued, a common scold, a literary wildcat from the backwoods, which is flattering. Um, and, so it's a long one. <laughs> yeah, and my personal favorite, though this was actually said um, of her by John Quincy Adams, so it was really more in admiration than in scorn, um, a virago errant in enchanted armor. Um, wow. And actually one of my favorite accounts of her, uh, one newspaper said that her writing served, in, quote, in quotes, the detestable purpose of a woman whose brazen face effrontery is without parallel and whose old age and the decay of personal beauty have unfitted her for employment, which at an earlier period in life yielded her a comfortable, though infamous, support. <laughs> so, in reading about Anne Royal, what surprised me the most was how unsung she actually was, um, in particular by her successors in the suffragette movement. Um, interestingly, it seems that the merciless criticism that made her a powerhouse also relegated her, at least for some time, to the dustbin of feminist history. She was actually snubbed by the suffragettes, who were starting to do their thing in her later years of life, um, because even though she supported various liberal causes, including abolition, suffrage, education for all, uh, she was as critical of the infighting and disingenuity that she perceived in their movement as she was of anyone trying to push any political agenda. So in my opinion, considering her legacy as a pioneering journalist, political dissenter, and let's face it, the epitome of a nasty woman. Um, the... <laughs> Story of Anne Royal reminds me of the story of another um, groundbreaking woman journalist. That is, uh, you, you guys ever heard of Nellie Bly? Uh, yeah. yeah. Had her queued up too. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, I'm glad I got in first. Uh, so Nellie Bly was an American journalist born in 1864 who was most famous for traveling around the world in 72 days, 
to beat Jules Verne's character's uh, fictional record of 80 days. And that was pretty cool. Um, but more <laughs> importantly, she went undercover at great personal risk to investigate reports of brutality and neglect at the Women's Lunatic Asylum on what was then known as Blackwell's Island, and which is now known as Roosevelt Island, which is a part of New York City, and which we can actually see outside of the window right now. So that's it's pretty interesting um, that it's, it's a place that's so close to us. And it was a horrible, horrible place. But the story of how she feigned insanity to be committed is actually pretty extraordinary. She spent a night practicing expressions in front of a mirror that she thought looked insane. <laughs> then she checked into a boarding house where she made a scene, telling the other boarders there that she was afraid of them and that they looked crazy. <laughs> oh, no, you're the crazy one. I'm not crazy. You're crazy. Sounds like um, what a crazy person would say. Exactly, that <laughs> was exactly her plan. Um, she was very convincing. And she was taken to several doctors um, who, were, who all declared her insane. One said, quote, positively demented. I consider it a hopeless case. She needs to be put where someone will take care of her, end quote. The head of the, quote, insane pavilion at Bellevue Hospital, which, first of all, <laughs> sounds like a great yes. name for a band. <laughs> the <Yes>. insane pavilion <laughs> uh, at Bellevue <laughs> Hospital, a famous psychiatric hospital, pronounced her undoubtedly insane. Uh, once she was committed, she observed the deplorable conditions and the regular violence that was visited on the patients, and she also made note that many of the patients around her seemed no less insane than she was. Her book, Ten Days in a Madhouse, led to an investigation of the asylum and many reforms, but for all people focused on how amazing it is that she was able to feign insanity, trick all these doctors, and to have herself committed to this horrible place required such bravery... I think the most amazing thing about this story is that at the end of this, she was able to convince them that she wasn't actually crazy and that they should let her leave. Like <laughs> that's remarkable. Yeah, that is that, that is the most impressive thing that she did. She was managed to talk herself out of an insane asylum, which I'm sure are normally filled with a bunch of people saying they shouldn't be there. I'm not crazy because oh, we're Napoleon. Yeah. All three of us. <laughs> <laughs> So getting out of an insane asylum is actually basically impossible nowadays. And I don't know if you've ever read. Um, it's a John Ronson book called The Psychopath Test. It was written in 2011. Um, John Ronson's a great um, uh, British author, a nonfiction writer, and he basically describes the history of the diagnosis of a mental illness in the United States and in the world, and really the kind of jaded history that we have with it. And so The Psychopath Test is actually, uh, it's a little bit of a misnomer. It's a set of characteristics that if you qualify or if you check off so many boxes, you're declared or were declared mentally insane. Um, <clears throat> and so the problem is that many of these things are very kind of mundane. And so like selfishness would be one of the boxes or kind mm -hmm. of narcissism. Um, but it's just if you accrue too many of them, then you could, you could test positive for being a psychopath. And then essentially the way that it's defined and was, was practiced in the 70s, even through today, mm -hmm. is that if you're manipulative, um, if you seem calm, if you state a clear case, these are this shows that you are a psychopath, that you are manipulating your way out of the system. So it is essentially impossible wow. to talk your way out of it now, because any sort of like um, like level-headedness or any sort of like basically clarity in your talk is just a sign that you're being manipulative and that you are in fact like this like mastermind psychopath. And the, the modern DSM or Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that describes uh, mental disorders uh, doesn't use that term. It uses much more kind of specific. Um, diagnostics, all of these things kind of uh, have, have evolved a great way, but this idea that there's a mental illness is still such a huge stigma and is kind of irreversible 
um, was true even back then. So it is really impressive that Nellie Bly was able to like turn this on her on the side and get out of it. Well, so basically how she did it was that she was on assignment from a newspaper, and the newspaper was supposed to come get her. Oh, um, okay. but, I was going to say, uh, it's now. Yeah, so it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't like she had to sit in front of a panel and be like, haha, I'm really a journalist, not a crazy lady who found in a hotel. <laughs> um, no, it, it was actually, um, she was writing for uh, Joseph Pulitzer's newspaper, The New York World. Um, and they, you know, he was a very influential guy, and they came in and got her and, and got her out. Kind of the um, I do, after you two both have described, like, powerful feminists, I have just facts about an old white man who was president. <laughs> but, <laughs> Which watch? <laughs> I mean, sure. there were 44 of them. But, <laughs> true, talk very about true. talk like we always do. Uh, but, uh, so John Quincy Adams was a kind of interesting president, um, because uh, in the election of 1824, Adams did not win a majority or um, have the most electoral votes. Uh, and so it was the one and only contested election. Hashtag, that... she won more votes. <laughs> <laughs> well, while we're on the topic. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but Adams did neither, in, impressively. Um, and he, in the election of 1824, was the only election decided by the 12th Amendment where no, um, no one candidate held a majority. It was split fairly evenly between four candidates. And the House, wow. uh, the House of Representatives had to decide it. And so after a few days, uh, he was elected president. Uh, Andrew Jackson said it was a corrupt bargain between Adams and Henry Clay. Um, and uh, nonetheless, Jackson was not president. He ran again in 1828 and famously won by, by quite a bit. Um, but for four years, John Quincy Adams was an unpopular and uh, not popularly elected president. Um, and he had some cool things that happened in his, uh, in his campaign. Um, but kind of most interestingly, after he was elected president, he went back to the House of Representatives and he continued to serve. Oh, he was the yeah. only president to do that uh, in the history of the United States. All right. Thanks, Emily. And I'll close it out with my fact. And that is about one Edward Carl Frederick Otto. Um, and he is known or not known for patenting his design and naming it the Otto Die Cycle. Uh, and this was perhaps the safest bicycle in history. Picture the world in 1877. Picture men in suits walking around the city and one adventurous young man riding down the road on a fairly dangerous penny-farthing bicycle. This madness was the world of 1877. Are, are you guys first familiar with the penny-farthing bicycle? Yes. Big I front wheel, so. tiny back wheel, super tall. Yeah, yep. exactly. Okay, cool. Named after the, um, named after not really the ratio, but like kind of the relative size of a farthing and a penny coin. Huh. Oh. So two different size um, circles. Cool. And so the penny farthing was, it, it, it was a device that used mechanical leverage, like your body weight to help you pedal. It had a gear shift, um, so the chain would move you forward. And so it was like the first kind of major bicycle. And it was eventually, that kind of style was called the ordinary. Now there's a, a big problem. Uh, which I think you guys might be familiar with right away, of having like a 60-inch front tire on your bicycle, <laughs> is that it's very easy to just fall. And it's actually not a particularly safe or practical way to, to move around. And so, But the thing is, bicycling was really popular. So alternatives started to be invented. Um, so there is... Uh, Otto also invented actually another, what's called a safety bicycle. And this one was called his kangaroo bicycle. Uh, it's had a 36-inch front tire. You sat a little bit further in the back. And I believe it's called the kangaroo because your feet are pushing out in front of you 
in a pedaling motion, uh, as if you're on like Just like, like a, a kangaroo? Well, like a kangaroo <laughs> boxing. Oh. Um, so the arms oh, would be moving. And, and so famously, actually, Otto's kangaroo bicycle, um, which is funny, if you look up the kangaroo bicycle, it says it was invented by Hillman, Herbert, and Cooper. And they're the people who mass-produced it. But there are drawings um, in the name Kangaroo Bicycle that looks like it actually belongs to ECF Otto. But so Otto is truly unsung because he does not have a Wikipedia page. (gasps) And that's like, you know, that means you didn't make it in history. (laughs) You're to be forever forgotten. the definition of unsung. And his is kind of a tragic story uh, because his bicycle, um, which I haven't even fully described yet, his bicycle is really one of a kind. The Otto Dicycle has two wheels on the same axis. And so to picture that, imagine that you're in a wheelchair, but this wheelchair, the wheels are going like up past your head and you're sitting on the axis of a wheelchair and there are no front wheels. It's a pretty (laughs) neat idea. However, you might immediately catch on to the problem of this design. You just spin around around. Yeah, it'd be, it's, it's particularly difficult to stay upright in this configuration. And so there, there was kind of like mass displacement, something hanging underneath so that you would sit up and there'd be a thing on the back. Some had a tail that would like hit the ground. So if you leaned back, you wouldn't dump backwards out of the bicycle. Yeah. Um, so that was all fairly practical. And that weighted rod on the back was the stabilizer bar. But the real problem was you would just fly forward out of it. Like there was <laughs> literally nothing to stop you from falling forward. Um, and so about a thousand of these bicycles were ever made. They were never popular. But some of them still exist. And the, the American Bicycle Museum, there's a, a first-hand experience of a man who is named Tony P. And he describes his attempt. My first attempt to ride one of these unusual machines resulted in almost falling flat on my face as sitting on the wide saddle and placing your feet on the pedals, I discovered immediately tipped you forward. Giving this result some thought, I resat on the saddle and immediately leaned back, causing the outrigger to touch the ground behind me. This brought the pedal crank up in front of me, so still leaning back, I gingerly placed my feet on the pedals and applied pressure. Lo and behold, I moved. <laughs> so basically, he describes how almost everything you do, including braking, would cause you to fly out of this bicycle. <laughs> and so, as a safety bicycle, it was a bit of a failure. But for, for purposes that uh, of prudishness, it was seen as the bicycle for ladies and young men. <laughs> Because they wouldn't have to be like a stride. It wouldn't something. be yeah. yeah, a stride a bicycle. And so they could sit very, you know, ladylike with their legs together in an upright position. Why couldn't they just ride a regular bicycle side saddle? I mean <laughs> I don't know. How do you in do that? Of, in terms of safety, I don't know that's any better. Yeah. <laughs> so the auto die cycle has kind of gone down in history as this historic mistake. Sorry, actually it hasn't gone down in history. <laughs> yes. History <laughs> thought it was such a mistake they omitted it. <laughs> Um, but it's a shame because it is just a, it's a clever idea, a poorly executed perhaps, um, but it is actually very intrinsically related to something that we still use today, and that's the tricycle. And yeah. so um, tricycle manufacturing, um, and I found, I found a book from the MIT Press that looks like the driest book called Of Bicycles, Bake Lights, and Bulbs Towards a Theory of Socio-Technical Change. <laughs> This was, this was a misery to browse. Sounds like <laughs> the first draft of Guns, Germs, and Steel. <laughs> Bicycles, bake lights, and bulbs. No, we can do better. <laughs> Just of the title a little bit. But there's a, there's a clip that says, The tricycle was a very viable alternative to the bicycle in the 1880s and 90s, and not some historical mistake, as it may seem now. Most cycle manufacturers produced bicycles as well as tricycles. And then the author goes on to mention Singer and Company, and Singer & Company was actually involved in a very long-standing lawsuit 
um, some of the legal proceedings I found with Otto um, over the design of the die cycle because it was a patent infringement and in, with the tricycle. And so in some ways he was responsible for the development and manufacturing of tricycles, um, which kind of led the way for revolutionizing uh, manual transport things like bicycles, tricycles, scooters and the like all kind of came from this revolution of late 1800s uh, manufacturing. And so Singer was still a company. Many of the other companies that, that used his designs still exist, but Otto is pretty much stricken from the history books. Um, on the topic of weird bicycles, actually, um, the Wright brothers, who were bicycle manufacturers, among other things, um, they actually, you know, when they made the, the Wright uh, flyer, they actually flipped a coin to see who would make the, the attempt at the first flight. Um, and Wilbur won the coin toss. But his attempt actually resulted in a crash that messed up the plane. So a couple days later, Orville got uh, you know the second attempt and um, was the first in flight, um, and in mm. a heavier than air aircraft. And so actually throughout that day, they would just trade off. And so like the first flight was only like 180 feet, but by the end, I think they had gone like like 800 feet or something. So it really uh-huh. like in in just that period of like the day that they were doing it, they increased the longest flight ever by like four or five times or whatever it is, <laughs> which is pretty amazing. But it is, when you think about it, par for the course in terms of humanity's uh, acceleration of their ability to fly um, and to go farther and farther. And just something interesting I also found was that Neil Armstrong actually carried a piece of the right flyer with him when he went to the moon. Oh, and just to drive that home, cool. from first flight and what was essentially a bicycle with wings to putting a man on the moon took 66 years. Wow. I mean, that's insane. Uh, I have just two last things on old bicycles. Um, so there, there were other, like some of these names were just really fascinating. So the Penny Farthing is probably the one that, that we may know best. I don't know if that's true. That's the one I, I recognized. Um, but the name for all these kind of road bikes was Velocipedes, yeah. which I think is pretty cool. Uh, and there's still like a little bit of a, a history of that and so like bicycle racing indoors is in a velodrome so it's all mm-hmm. like speed mm-hmm. um, but the velocipede was pretty amazing um, there's one that was called the European bone shaker bicycle and I want you and I want you the listener at home to do this too I want you to just picture if a five year old had to draw a bicycle what it would look like and then you won't be able to do this but we'll put it on the Instagram no and Emily I just want you to look at this bicycle <laughs> tell me how it works <laughs> where are the pedals <laughs> it like they're not even like the wheels aren't even round <laughs> oh no those are the oh no those are the pedals yeah okay. so <laughs> it looked to use those pedals it's like you're getting a gynecological exam <laughs> Um, so on the topic of uh, early models of transportation that were also really bad, um, I looked at some early car models that did not take off for pretty obvious reasons. Um, so one of them I looked at was called the Horsey Horseless. Uh, it was not produced, but at least designed and advertised in 1899. And they were meant to solve the issue, apparently an issue, that when automobiles were first rolling out, they still had to share the road with horse-drawn carriages, and horses were spooked by their mechanical counterparts. <laughs> um, so the solution to this issue, proposed by the inventor of the horsey horseless, Uriah Smith, uh, was essentially a car that looks like a normal car of the time, uh, looks like a Model T if you look it up, um, but with a giant fake wooden horse head stuck to the front. <laughs> 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 so it's basically just like a giant, like, gaudy, god 
grandfather inspired hood ornaments <laughs> on top of a Model T. Um, this horse head would also hold combustible fuel to just add to the list of brilliant ideas. Unsurprisingly, it didn't really catch on, and it's not actually clear whether they were even produced or sold, unlike another terrible car that appeared later on in 1911 called the Overland Octo Auto. Uh, so if you picture this, it is literally just a car with eight wheels. <laughs> so four on each side. Um, for it's twice as good. Yeah, <laughs> that was literally the idea <laughs> for a smoother ride. And it ended up being over 20 feet long. <laughs> a bunch of them were made. Literally no one bought them. So to improve it and make it more palatable, they rolled out a new version called the Sexo Auto, which exactly as it sounds like had six wheels instead. And unsurprisingly, that one also flopped. Um, but it should be noted that the dude who invented both of these, Milton Reeves, also invented the muffler. So at least he did something right. <laughs> oh, yeah. My favorite car of all time. And my favorite, perhaps favorite uh, designer of all time is Buckminster Fuller. And he invented a three-wheeled car called the Dynamax, which is, it's fascinating because it's turning radius is the length of the car. And it just, <laughs> yeah. like, the back wheel articulates completely and it can just spin around in a circle, like, wow. in place. It's just, he was such a, like, different thinker. And so we could do a whole another show on Buckminster Fuller, and I'd love it. <laughs> yeah. um, but really, it, it looked like a torpedo, because it's like perfectly rounded on all sides. Um, <laughs> like a torpedo? Uh, like, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Rewind. <laughs> you know, like when you're playing with your kid and you toss a torpedo. <laughs> <laughs> you're playing hot torpedo? Hot torpedo? What is happening to you guys? I really meant that it was aerodynamic. <laughs> um, actually, one more fact to tie in early automobiles and bicycles. Uh, the first auto speeding ticket that was given in the UK in 1896 was granted by a policeman on a bicycle. <laughs> Um, because the perpetrator exceeded the speed limit at that time, which was two miles an hour, by recklessly flying down the road at a whopping eight miles per hour. Wow. Yeah. I, I do have to say I regret the fact that Otto invented bicycles and not cars, because if he invented cars, they would be automobiles. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just, just one last thing on the topic of uh, weird bicycles. Um, I, I also happened to look up uh, the fastest mile on a unicycle, um, and that is 3 minutes, 26 seconds, and 22 milliseconds. <laughs> Uh, which an a- with an average speed of 17.45 miles per hour, and you'll notice that that's faster than the fastest mile runners. And I always imagine sort of a unicycle as a sort of awkward thing where you're never really totally on balance. Yeah. Um, and that's pretty amazing because, like, three minutes, 26.22 milliseconds is way faster than the fastest mile of a run. Um, like, I'm not exactly sure what that time was, but I know it's, like, a lot closer to four minutes. Um, yeah, I mean, the the four-minute mark was kind of like the can men ever break it uh, for a long time. But it, Roger Bannister uh, did that in 1952 Olympics, I think. Um, so he was the first man under. And now the, the, the world record is considerably down, I think, in the 340s. Uh, but high school national champions will occasionally break four minutes for their mile times. So, wow. Yeah, man has come a long way. But honestly, <laughs> that just makes uh, my next record even more impressive because <laughs> I also looked up the fastest mile on a unicycle while juggling um, and, it's, Amazing. and it's three minutes 50 seconds and 63 seconds, which is I mean that's insane can you imagine like no the sense. best runners in the world are running at this pace at the same I mean just imagine like can you picture like a unicyclist really and they're already can't. so awkward <laughs> But, like, imagine one just leaning forward, juggling at 
full speed. Like that's <laughs> insane to me. Um, I would but love it to, is, yeah. It's I would love to see just the man in the last like four hundred meters of his race running, and then the guy in the unicycle <laughs> just goes right by him. <laughs> this is so demoralizing. <laughs> he wins by a bowling pin. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And so we'll wrap things up with my quiz, loosely inspired by unsung heroes. And I was thinking, what do heroes do? They save. Heroes save. Got it. And so today's quiz is all about saving. Things that are saved, things that save, the process of saving, saviors, anything that's saved will be in this quiz. Okay, so question number one. When we last heard, who owned and operated the Bedford Falls Building and Loan? Well, that's the from guy a, from a It's a Wonderful Life. life. Yeah. Yep. What's his name? Uh, it's can you not... can you give me his actor name? The name of the actor who portrayed him. No. No. Oh, <laughs> is that <laughs> <upset> <laughs> Carter? Oh no. I don't remember oh, his name. It's so frustrating. I haven't seen it in ages. It's, it's, it, I know it's familiar. I know it's one that I would recognize, but I just can't remember it. Yeah. But we know it is the guy. It it's is the, the main, main character, character from It's a Wonderful Life. And he sees no, he, life. Talk, he talks like this. He's yeah. a character. Oh, same he sees life without him. <laughs> like that. And there's an angel, and they ring a bell for yeah. the angel. Clarence. I feel like we've Clarence. said enough things about the movie. Yeah, you, you, clearly, <laughs> you clearly know who it is, but are just without the fact. So yeah. the, the character is named George Bailey. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Bailey yeah. Building and Loan. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. And is played by Jimmy Stewart. Okay. Yeah. Actor Jimmy Stewart. Cool. Question number two. What mathematician who posited a negative solution to the Enscheidung's problem is believed to have saved between 14 and 21 million lives during World War II? Alan Turing? Alan Turing, yeah. Alan Turing, yeah. So Alan Turing, the mathematician, uh, he contributed heavily to the kind of logic uh, models that helped contribute to the machines that eventually decrypted and decoded Enigma, uh, the German uh, cryptography. And so uh, several years before the war ended, he was able to, or the, that technology was able to uh, break German code, help inform the movement of British troops, save many lives in the war, and considerably shorten the European front of the war with the Nazis. So um, good work, Alan Turing. Nice to do. <laughs> uh, question number three. What cryogenically preserved baseball player and the most recent living member of the 400 Club had the highest on-base percentage of all time, meaning that he was safe? More often than anyone else. Mm. Oh, I, I'm, yeah. I have no idea. Okay, there's no chance I get this. All right, so I'm yeah. just gonna put you out of your misery. Yeah, just do it. So this yeah. is the Ted Williams, baseball player Ted Williams. He, I don't know who that is, mm. Rob. No. Okay, <laughs> he is famous not only for being one of the best hitters in the history of the game, as well as being able to take walks and get on base. Um, when he passed away, he was the last living member to bat a season over 400. He had the highest on base percentage, like 489. Uh, was his on-base percentage, which is still the highest all-time. That's one thing about this that is really interesting to me is that in our group of nerds, Rob is the sports guy. Yeah. <laughs> it's really... Rob is the sports nerd. That's an insult to, like, sports fans everywhere. <laughs> we were talking about, like, a, a very old baseball player. This guy is almost more, like, Irving Berlin than he is, like, Derek Jeter, if that <laughs> makes any sense. No. <laughs> Now okay. you're putting it in terms that I can understand. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, basically, he was a good baseball player, and now he's frozen. Okay. So that's the takeaway. All right. <laughs> All right. Question number four for the youth. Vil Remy Zero song "Save Me" was the theme song to what millennial television series? Um, uh, the the Superman one, Smallville. Yes. Oh. Save good. Me. Yeah, that's it. But better sounding. 
<laughs> no, it, was, it pretty much sounded like that. Oh, okay. <laughs> so Remy Zero, not famous for much else except for the song Save Me, um, and uh, we, to which we were introduced Tom Welling, the young Superman in Smallville. All right. Four questions down in this uh, blockbuster quiz. <laughs> All right. Number five. Uh, what type of savings account is named after a Republican Delaware senator who passed away in 2003? That would be a Roth IRA. That is correct. Yeah, yes. so named after the Delaware senator William Roth. He was a big big tax reform kind of guy. And the Roth IRA actually um, caused a lot of people to invest in this sort of retirement account and uh, created a, a really big influx of money for the government. So a really, really nice thing. For, uh, for most parties. There are a lot of actually critics of the Roth IRA, but uh, tax reform doesn't happen that often. Uh, so we got it. We got our Roth IRA. Invest now. <laughs> Pay taxes later. <laughs> All right. Question number six. You may not have heard of Tervel of Bulgaria, but he is considered one of the two saviors of Europe. His army saved Constantinople from an Arab siege in 718. Uh, while what other man led a Frankish army to overpower overpower the Arabs at Tours in 732? That's too early for Charlemagne, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. It is shortly before Charlemagne. It kind of set the stage for the birth of the Holy Roman Empire. Not really. So this guy, um, he, he drove the Moors into and then back out of Spain. Uh, but the Battle of Tours was 732. And that was kind of, that was the battle for which he was perhaps most famous. And he, was, he had a nickname, The Hammer. Okay. Um, but this man was Charles Martel, the hammer. Who? Oh. Is he blank? Okay. <laughs> now I vaguely remember that name from maybe sure. 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah, this is, it's a Euro- European history kind of question. I got to learn more about European history and baseball. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly, I apologize for it. I did not mean for this to be no, it's, it's quite good. the quiz it is. Yeah, but good. I think this is a good survey of Trivial Pursuit cards from the 1980s. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Question number seven. And this, this is amazing. So there's a great story I've heard about a, a student. Um, and th- this is an anecdote. This isn't from online. Uh, but if this happened with a friend, a co-teacher of mine. A student who found a floppy disk around the lab and said, look, somebody 3D printed the save symbol. <laughs> 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 Which is just like, oh, daggers to the heart. <laughs> but so uh, it got me thinking. So save symbol is, is a representation of a floppy disk. Um, what else is an abstraction of something that is now a digital symbol? And can you tell me, what is the symbol that is two circles joined on the bottom by a solid line that stands for a voicemail? What is that representative of? Is it um, like a cassette tape? Yeah, yeah, that's basically yeah, that's it. Okay. So it, it, oh, is, cool. nice. it is meant to represent real-to-real <laughs> like recording. Yeah, like it, I, um, I was thinking it was something like the, the, you know, the sort of whatever, the magnetic tape that just like goes between them. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, because original voicemail recorders were two reels of audio tape, right. and when you called, it would activate it, record, right. and then stop. Right. Wow, yeah. So, it's interesting, I didn't know that. Yeah, and so next time you get a voicemail, besides being like, who the hell leaves voicemails? You can say, oh, look at that. Well, you know what's great now is that um, the iPhone now uh, will, so you don't even have to listen to it. It transcribes it and shows you the text of the call. Oh, really? And it works shockingly well. I'm sure there are many instances of it not working, but I, I didn't even know that was a feature when I like updated my phone. And then I, I saw it and I was like, this is great. I don't have to listen to all my voicemails now. Yeah. I like checking my voicemails at the end of every week, and it's four calls from my mom. It's like, Bobby, you didn't pick up. Hang up. <laughs> Your mom calls you Bobby? My mom calls me Bobby. Oh, <laughs> that's so cute. <laughs> but it's just, it's so, like, it's really heart-wrenching, because it's like, we wanted to talk to you. 
Like, just <laughs> just three second voicemails of despair from my mother, and that's all I have. Uh, <laughs> is everything okay at home, Rob? <laughs> yes. It's great. It's fine. Because <laughs> it's, it's always the first one is like, hi, oh, you didn't pick up, call us back. And then it's like, you didn't pick up. And then it's like, we wanted to talk the to you. The Another Bob's Burgers reference. Oh, yeah. Nice. That was good. And we're on to question number eight at last. So, this is uh, a musical question. What song was written when a band's lead singer, Ivan Dorischuk, was thrown out of a Canadian nightclub for pogo dancing in an unsafe manner? (gasps) Safety dance? It is safety dance. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, pogo dancing, whatever it is, does sound pretty dangerous. Yeah, the thing is, it's not. (laughs) Okay. So I had to look it up too. I did not know what it was. Yeah. Um, pogo dancing is the act of jumping straight up and down as if you're on a pogo stick. I think they do that in the music video for that song yes. too. Yes. Yes. Okay. Wow. And so he did that's this amazing. in a club, and someone was like, "Hey, stop! You're that's weird. I don't know. Get out of here." <laughs> you can do Please, because it's Canada. You can and... leave that club behind. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, safety dance, men without hats. All right, and that's all we have prepared for you today. Uh, thanks for tuning in. If you do have time, please check us out on any audio platform and leave us a rating and review. And check us out on our social media, at Fax Machine Pod on Instagram and Twitter and Fax Machine Podcast on Facebook. See you next time. Welcome to Fax Machine. Summer is blazing on around us, and so are we here at Fax Machine. You've made it to... <laughs> <laughs> Did you just hear that? Did you just...